Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, to kick off the sixth season of our show, we're joined by Todd Davis to discuss his latest book of poetry, Coffin Honey. Thanks for tuning in. As I said in the intro, this will be the sixth season of the MSU Press podcast, and I'm super excited to share new interviews with MSU Press authors on subjects such as remix culture, nuclear energy, and life in a small town in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. We'll also have Native American stories, Australian politics, eloquence in speech, and plenty of poetry, and I hope you'll join us for the whole season. Today, we're discussing Coffin Honey. Todd Davis's seventh book of poems and his sixth with MSU Press. In the book, Davis explores the many forms of violence we do to each other and to the other living beings with whom we share this planet. Davis dramatizes racism, climate collapse, and pandemic, as well as the very real threat of extinction in intimate portraits of Rust Belt Appalachia. A young victim of sexual assault struggles with dreams of revenge and the possible solace that nature might provide. A girl whose boyfriend is enlisted in the military faces pregnancy alone, and a bear named Ursus navigates the fecundity of the forest after his own mother's death, literally crashing into the encroaching human world. The poems in Coffin Honey illuminate beauty and suffering, the harrowing precipice we find ourselves walking along here in the early years of the 21st century. As in his previous prize-winning books, Davis names the world with love and care demonstrating what one reviewer describes as his knowledge of Latin names, common names, habitats, and habits steeped in the exactness of the earth and the science that unfolds in the wilderness. Todd Davis is the author of seven full-length collections of poetry, as well as a limited edition chapbook, Household of Water, Moon, and Snow. His writing has won the Midwest Book Award, the Gwendolyn Brooks Poetry Prize, and the Chautauqua Editor's Prize, as well as the Bloomsburg University Book Prize and the Forward Indies Book of the Year Silver and Bronze Awards. And I'm super excited to have him with us on the show today. Todd, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I wonder if we could start with a little bit of discussion about the structure of Coffin Honey. It's a little bit different from previous books of yours in that there's a real distinct narrative throughout the book. And I was wondering if that's something you planned or if it sort of came from working on these poems and starting to think of a collection of them. It is different than my previous books. I had a friend recently remark on the fact that a lot of my earlier books have more personal poems. The poet or the speaker in a poem is never our actual, right, autobiographical self, but it's often based on that self. And in all the books, again, I had poems about other people, persona poems, speaking in the voices of others, trying to cross that imaginative boundary like a short story writer or a novelist does continuously. But as I've progressed, definitely the previous book to this, Native Species, have a lot of poems in other people's voices. And one of those poems was called Taxidermy Cathart Aura, about that young boy who's been sexually assaulted by his uncle, a boy living in a rural landscape, and he stuck with me. And this same poetry friend, she's a a poet who teaches at Bucknell University, had said, I want to know more about him. She reads my manuscripts before I send them to Michigan State. And she said this four years ago, before I sent Native Species off, 
And his story had continued with me. And I started to write poems about him. And then this bear, Ursus, this bear figure started to really draw me in. And their two stories started to combine. And then other voices, like the voice of that young girl who gets pregnant and and her boyfriend goes off to Fort Bragg and and is uh, enlisted. All of these people started to become part of this broader narrative. And when I was uh, first coming to poetry, I mean, a long time ago, in the 1970s in junior high, Edgar Lee Masters' Spoon River Anthology or a book of connected short stories like Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, I liked that. I liked the idea of a geographical location, maybe even a spiritual or, or psychological location would be examined by many different voices, many different figures. And that's what I found started to happen with Cough and Honey. It is much more of a narrative book. While I've always written narrative poems, it's much more of a narrative book. And there's stories of these people and animals keep intersecting. Could you tell us a little bit about the setting? You, you mentioned this fascinating phrase, kind of spiritual geographical location. And I think that really does describe the kind of setting where these poems take place. Tell us a little bit about the natural spaces that the characters in this book inhabit. Sure. I feel so strongly about place. In fact, one of the things I do when I meet somebody is usually to ask, you know, where were you born? Or, and then where were you, where'd you grow up? Where do you live now? I think very specific kinds of landscapes have a spiritual geography atmosphere to them. You know, if, uh, desert regions, I've spent some time in high desert country in the Fort Davis Mountains, for example, doing field research in West Texas. It has such a different feeling and it has such a different psychological and emotional effect on the residents compared to an area like I live in now with uh, a very high average rainfall. That's not to say either is better, of course, than one another, but just so different. And so the landscape for Coffin Honey is essentially here along the Allegheny Front, Blair County, Bedford County. And for those who don't know uh, Southern Appalachia, Blair County is considered the northernmost county of Southern Appalachia. The minute you go north into Center County, uh, where State College and Penn State University Park is, suddenly you've moved beyond Southern Appalachia and you're moving into Northern Appalachia. Where I live and where this book is set, we have enormous native rhododendron groves that grow along all our stream beds. We have cucumber magnolia trees or called cucumber trees that are native in the forests. And, uh, you know, they can grow to 100, 120 feet tall. They're enormous, but they are in the cucumber family and have a very unique blossom and get a fruit that's similar to the domesticated uh, magnolia that some people are familiar with. We have timber rattlesnakes here and copperheads. Where I live is Rust Belt, Appalachia as well. What was once a booming railroad industry here in Altoona, a town that at one time had about 110,000 residents, now only has 48,000. And uh, the detritus of those empty, rusting back, decaying railroad beds in the machine shops. And uh, my parents both were Appalachian folk. My father from Kentucky and his family goes back to the 1760s in Kentucky. And my mother uh, in Virginia, outside of Lexington, Virginia and Collierstown. And again, her family goes back to the 18th century. Many of those stories, as well as the people here, 
that I've lived with for about 20 years in Blair County. All of that melange of people come to play a role in this book. I'm hesitant to jump right into the reading of poems, but one that we picked for today up on Blue Knob feels like it really expresses something of this idea about the spirituality and the shape of a landscape as it gives shape to the people that come from there. Would you mind reading that one for us? Absolutely. Writers, we we pick the names of things because the names resonate with us for whatever reason. If you lived in Blair County, you'd know Blue Knob is in a state park now. And uh, there's even a ski area, a small ski area on Blue Knob. I tell you that because I picked Blue Knob because many places that my parents lived would have nomenclature like that, you know, some knob. And, and I loved that idea that there is no flat place that you can put your foot down on here where I live. And I mean that on stone that is constantly shifting as well as the elevation gain everywhere. So up on Blue Knob. Up on Blue Knob, most of the men possess one leg shorter than the other. Femur whittled by thousands of hours wrestling a plow along ridgeline. Because the mules the men follow are fashioned by the hollow's pitch as well, the farrier trims hooves at an angle, builds shoes to compensate. Wives and mothers, when they call on kin in the valley, limp across flat ground, hips unused to anything but the swell and fall of the mountain. For 10 years, children run with a normal gait, the length it takes gangly limbs to sprout, to learn to balance the sole inheritance granted by this slanted world. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, we talked already about the sort of landscape and, and nature's effect on the people, you know, that that live there, that inhabit that space. But the interesting thing about this poem and so many of the poems in the book is that it fashions all of the creatures that live in this space. So it's the mule is also um, has to be treated differently because it's walking on this uneven ground. And so its body then becomes a different embodiment because of the place where it lives. I wonder if if we could turn now to thinking a little bit about Ursus as a character. Like you've talked about the people in the spaces where they come from and writing from different character perspectives. What is it like to try to write poems from the perspective of a bear? <laughs> I, I think I'll say first it's impossible, right? But that's the act of the imagination is trying to imagine the impossible. I'm the son of a veterinarian and the grandson of of poor subsistence farmers in Appalachia. And as the son of a veterinarian, I spent more time in my formative years with other than human animals than with human animals. And in some ways, I still feel more comfortable with other than human animals. And part of the act of trying to write from a bear's perspective, it's being in the presence of those animals, being quiet, observing them, listening to them. (laughs) Animals have such interesting ways of communicating with one another, a range of things, Um, whether that be birds communicating. I I had a wonderful experience just over the winter break uh, with two coyote that I was, oh, I suppose about initially only 30 yards away from. And we spent about 20 minutes together. And um, 
They never vocalized till they got about 60 yards out. And each one gave one vocalization before they left my presence. And so, uh, you know, again, where I live, we have a very robust black bear population. A lot of folks don't know that in Pennsylvania, we have some of the largest black bears anywhere on the planet. In 2010, a black bear was harvested here during this the hunting season legally that was nearly 900 pounds. We have some black bear here that reach 900 pounds and a little over. And so I have encounters with black bear. And um, as I said, this bear ends up, his story and Ursus's story intertwines with this boy's story. And so I tried to imagine all of the different kinds of emotional qualities a bear has and what they experience, especially with human encroachment. One of the earliest poems in the book is called Music for Film Before the Destruction of a Drone. And we think about forest fragmentation as a form of encroachment on, on many animals, but black bear included. But I started to think about drones, their encroachment on wild things, certainly with birds and, and other uh, creatures of the air, insects, bats. But then I started to think, what if a drone was trying to examine a bear? What would that experience be like for the bear? How would they react to it? So trying to imagine across species boundaries into emotions, into instinct, uh, cyclical behaviors based on the time of the year. I don't know if I got it right at all, but I hope I honored Ursus in the telling of these stories. I was thinking about the kind of critical discussion around depictions of animals and the sort of wariness about anthropomorphizing creatures. I wonder if we could explore this question a little bit further in the characterization of Ursus. Like you, you mentioned trying to think about the emotions that a bear might experience or how they might react to particular pieces of human encroachment. Do you worry about anthropomorphizing other than human animals, or do you see that as a sort of strategy for making them legible to human beings? What's your take on the question of anthropomorphization? I, I really do have this sort of schizophrenic split brain when I approach this. I work with a lot of scientists. My father, of course, as a veterinarian, was a scientist. And so on one hand, as a scientist, you say we only have what we can observe. And there can be correlations, but ultimately, can you say that this sow bear demonstrates love and nurturing and the, the emotion of love and nurture coming together when she cares for this cub, when she nurses the cub, when she starts to teach the cub certain behavioral patterns? We certainly attribute that to human. But again, if we took a step back as if we didn't know what being a human was like, scientifically, we'd have to say the same thing. You know, is that love? Is that nurture? Okay, let's not name it that thing. Let's say that's just a pattern of behavior that allows this cub to go from birth to a point where the sow bear kicks that cub out because she's about to be pregnant again, have another litter. So, so there's that side of my brain. And, and I respect that kind of work in science. I think in the arts, for me, we can't remove ourselves from our human skulls, but we can try to imagine across boundaries. And in imagining across boundaries, as I say, I want to honor an other than human animal, in this case, a black bear. 
but I don't want to deny what I observe with certain kinds of behaviors in a species like a black bear. I don't think many mammologists have a problem saying that otters play river otters because we watch it and we go, okay, what they're doing right now doesn't seem to have any relationship to some sort of work they have to get done to either feed themselves or some other aspect of their life. And we'll name it as play. I kind of look at it that way. Uh, you know, when I'm writing about, for example, Ursus, if there's an aspect of play, I'm going to call it play. If there seems to be an aspect of care, I'm going to call it love. But I don't want to say it's the same as human play or human love. I, th I think maybe that's the line with anthropomorphization, that if you're simply remaking the animal to be like a human, I don't think that serves a great purpose. It certainly, I think, dishonors the other than human animal. But I also don't want to deny an emotional life and an intellectual life and try to describe what that might be like. And that's the big key, right? Might, might, might. It's, it's imagination, but what it might be like to be inside the life of that bear, inside the skull of that bear. Why don't we give listeners a taste of, of some of the product of that imagining, if you'd be willing to read To Wake from Long Sleep and Darkness, which is one of the Ursus poems from Coffin Honey? Sure. Ursus runs through a lot of these poems, and this is a, a really late poem in the book. There's an earlier poem in the book in which, uh, here in Appalachia, again, the tulip poplar trees are a native tree, and they're enormous. And they tend to start to die interiorly. And you can have 40 feet up on a big tulip poplar, an opening where black bears will climb up the tree and then down into these cavities within the tulip poplars to hibernate. And so I, I have a poem in here about that and about Ursus having just gone into hibernation there when somebody begins to cut that tree down. The reason I bring that up is this poem is called To Wake from Long Sleep and Darkness. And it's the idea that Ursus has found another place to hibernate. That's the long sleep and darkness. And he's just awakening. And um, black bears, when they first awaken, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, a, a couple week process for them to finally truly come into, um, I don't know if I want to call it full consciousness, but their metabolism to kick back up for them to have their first bowel movement, you know, get rid of that, the, the plug that they've had for this hibernating time for them to first start to try to eat again. And so I tried to think, what would that be like for Ursus? Is it like a dreamlike state for us as, as human beings? And maybe his misunderstanding of what he's, he's seeing at first. So it's called To Wake from Long Sleep in Darkness. And it begins with an epigraph from a poem by Robert Bly, who wrote, Explosions of Grief diving into the sea of death like the stars of the wheeling bear. Along the coast, darkened cities crumble while Venus shines brightly above Jupiter. Like the phosphorescent glow of jellyfish, Ursus sways through meteor showers. Sinking into light's reflection, he dreams of women who are half fox, half otter, of children who are more fawn than human, Ursus never dreams of men as other than the thing they are. Constellations swim, and he struggles against the tide to find the star that will guide him. 
The ends of green branches float. He reaches out to touch roosting birds, gentle caress along the feathers of the back. Despite the disappearance of Arctic terns, armies and navies follow their own shadows north. A river of milky light oxbows Ursus's eyes. Farther away, the hum of a greater light on the far edge of the horizon. What Ursus believes is the morning star is actually a flash of sun on the metal wings of a plane. When the sky falls to the ground, Ursus yearns for a starry crown to rest upon his head. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Todd Davis, author of Coffin Honey. It's such a powerful shift in perspective, I think, that line uh, where you say that Ursus never dreams of men as other than the thing they are. Suddenly, man is a thing in the in the landscape of the animal, and we're being asked to think about what impression we make on other creatures and what we sort of look like stripped of all of our assumptions and all of our culture and all of our feelings about you know love or whatever. And the idea that the bear's perspective on things is significantly different, and also the things that we know to be true of ourselves are in fact impossible for the bear to imagine. Like you can't even distinguish between uh, light in the, in the sky. Was it a star? Is it an airplane? Like, What must that do to the perspective of a creature and how does it force us to rethink ourselves? Yeah. Uh, and, and you know that's where you, the previous question about anthropomorphization, see, that, that's a difference. In fact, I just read a poem today and you know I honor other writers' decisions that are very different than my own, but it was a very whimsical poem about a bear. And the bear was in a human world and was fully adapted to the human world and knew what these things were. And you see, I I am so fascinated by and admire and want to honor the intelligence of other animals. But certainly a drone, for example, or a plane flashing across the sky, catching a glint of the sun on its wings, that's not necessarily something that Ursus would understand, that it would be something that would confuse Ursus. That other perspective, I'd like to read just a really brief poem from my previous book, Native Species, for you then, because it does this kind of work as well and and tries to put a perspective on us as a species. It's called Gnosis. In a blue river made of snowmelt that forms this valley of aspen and alder, I fish with my sons until summer's light fades in the recesses of a canyon. While hunting alone, I entered a small cave to take shelter from a passing squall and found the bones of a bear cub curled in a circle of trust. Someday, when the white fields disappear and only rain falls from the heavens, this river will vanish too. The trout we catch have throats that shine with a bright red mark suggesting the role blood plays in betrayal. A woman who was long dead told me that when a river passes away, it holds the memory of itself in the silt left behind. When our species is extinct, what animal will carry the memory of our lives? And so it's that last part, you know. At some point, the human species will be extinct, just like all species move in and out. And, uh, I I mean that as a real question. What animals will carry the memory of our lives? 
And so I think about that even in this moment without that, the issue of extinction, the encounters I have with other animals, how do they carry a memory of me? You may know the work of the biologist Bern Heinrich, and he's written a lot on corvids and you know all the fascinating research that's been done to demonstrate that corvids, ra ravens, and crows, they have facial recognition. They associate behaviors with those faces. They have memory of our lives. And so, you know, I think about Ursus, what would Ursus's memory of different humans be? It's interesting, too, that the responses to your question that I'm thinking of immediately are those species that we've had such an enormous impact on, like the chicken or the domestic dog, these species that actually their physical embodiment has been radically altered by encounter with human beings. And then, like, not even to consider the degree to which environmental changes are changing the bodies of animal creatures as they adapt to higher concentrations of CO2, warmer temperatures, you know, vanishing landscapes and all of those kinds of things like that the human is a part of a long environmental timeline that has a will have a memory that outlives the species is is a real shift in perspective about how we think of ourselves. Yeah, uh, you know, you were talking about what is going to be left behind, right? Because of where I live in Appalachia, mountaintop removal. Those mountaintops have not been slowly ground down through time like the rest of the Appalachian Range. They've been taken off through machinery and explosions that couldn't have even been imagined 150, 200 years ago. But the debt of that the memory of that on that landscape will always be there, literally will never be replaced. Now, this leads me to one of the other questions I wanted to ask you, because this is your seventh book of poems and, and you're, you know, the themes of your poems are pretty. Each of your books tends to deal with these questions about environment, about animals, about you know, the, the nature of the human being in that context. I'm curious in, in how this lifetime of writing about your relationship, human relationship to nature. How has that changed for you? So absolutely, it's been singular obsession, singular passion. I've been working very hard, very seriously at writing poems for about 32, 33 years. And how has it changed? Or maybe Todd, like how has all of that, has all of that writing changed the way you interact with the natural world, the way you teach people about it, like the way that you think about the creatures that live there? Yeah. For me, the practice of poetry is a practice of presentness, a practice of attention. You know, I'm always quoting Mary Oliver's line, attention is the beginning of devotion. I am a person that comes from a religious faith. And so the idea of a dailiness of liturgy is something that I was familiar with that came with me into my practice of poetry. And so from the very beginning, the, the writing of poems about flora and fauna deepens the relationship with that flora and fauna, the writing about a place. And I, I can't say I tend to, I, I, I can't think of a single moment that I have written a poem that is included in any of my books that isn't about a place that I have a long-standing relationship with. And, and so it deepens my relationship with those places. It's, it's very much about how we grow in intimacy 
with one another. And when I say with one another, we're so used to thinking about that, that as only human. I have many poems about my son, my wife, Shelly. We're about to celebrate our 34th year of marriage. And I've known her since I was 12 years old, had a crush on her since I was 12 when she moved into our school district. In that dailiness of attention and devotion, yes, I have grown in intimacy with my sons and my wife. The same thing has happened with spaces I write about. And as I say, the flora and fauna I write about. But to address the earlier question, I think the way it was written, for me, it's a bit like a pendulum. I can only write about the desecration of the natural world, the violence that we do to it and to one another for so long. And then I have to write about moments of joy, moments of spiritual epiphany. And and for me, the spiritual and material are always one thing. They're not uh, dualistic, divided from one another. I write about, you know, the gratefulness, the joy in the gratefulness for what still remains, a celebration of it. You know, in poetry terms, right, I can only write so many elegies before, for my own mental health, I have to turn back to odes. And so, Winterkill, which is three books ago, my father died of pancreatic cancer uh, during the writing of that book. And so Winterkill has a little more of nature in its violence and more of the violence we've done to it. And then the morning of my father's passing, whereas Native Species even has a poem literally called Thankful for Now in it, which is more of this celebration of what we have still left and not to ignore it, not to by grieving over what we are losing to not waste the gift of what is here now. Coffin Honey is back in the pendulum swing to a very dark place. And the reason it is, is over the last five or 10 years, you've seen real radical shifts towards climate collapse, the extended fire seasons and and drought, cataclysmic storms, species being extirpated in places, the high rate of extinction events as well. And I just was at a place that I said, this book has to address that absolutely. And it was very hard to write this book. I found myself grieving and depressed through much of it. And in the last almost year since I turned the manuscript over to Michigan State, I have been trying to write poems about what is here now so that I can recover some degree of joy still. I mean, it's not much, but recovering some degree of joy, I think, is a vital service, especially in this, you know, 2022 year where we we are still facing all of that ongoing climate catastrophe and pandemic turmoil and political turmoil and everything else. We need space in our lives for joy and to reassess our own relationship to things and each other and nature. And it's interesting to hear how your writing fits into that, you know, how, how it has been, you know, both a response to and a grappling with all of these kinds of things. On that note, you, you know, you mentioned a couple of times that, that you're a person of faith, that you, that your writing is a kind of almost liturgical practice. Where does the kind of relationship to nature fit on that spiritual scale? Do you like, do you find God in nature? Do you look there for that? Or is there something 
what is the role of of your religious faith, if you don't mind, in in your thinking about the environment and about nature and our place in the world? Uh, absolutely. I grew up in a very liberal Presbyterian church during the Vietnam War in Elkhart, Indiana, but Elkhart County has a lot of Amish and Mennonites. And for uh, nearly 30 years now, I have been a Mennonite Christian, but in, in the far left or liberal persuasion of that, very focused on peace and social justice. But in terms of my notions, for me, God is a placeholder. Uh, and I love that in certain faiths, you can't say the name of God because God is mystery. And I also believe through the myths of creation that if I believe nothing is created outside of God, then all <laughs> this entire physical place is God's body. And so that reverence, the sacredness of all living things that is a representation of God, that there's something of God in it. Uh, you know, these are very personal views, but that is the way I approach it, that there's something of God in it. So every tree, whether a new sapling or ancient, uh, you know, I, I was uh, in the, the redwoods uh, in October. So, you know, whether I'm, I'm touching a tree that's 2,000 or 3,000 years old, or I'm touching a sapling that literally is, uh, you know, a year old in the forest, or seeing the way an animal moves as a representation of the one aspect of God, of the mystery, the way it, it moves. So that's, you know, we were talking earlier about Ursus and anthropomorphization. For me, Ursus is one aspect of God being represented. No different than if uh, I, I write about a mink or a deer or another human. There is something of God in that. And that's where I, I love what science teaches us to a degree, you know, that we are made of stars, that, you know, there is no more or less energy in the universe now. It's just constantly transformed. I'm interested in the shapes it takes in, a, in the present moment, but then the way it's going to transform later. And so that's a deep part of my faith. I love about your work that that isn't limited to the kind of joy and sunshine and harmony with peace and flowers and all of the kind of, you know, the more sort of sentimental relationship to nature, the capital R romantic relationship to it, that if God is in all things in nature, then it's also in, you know, predation and suffering and decay and death. Like these are all part of the great harmonious whole, whatever that might be. I wonder to demonstrate this, if you wouldn't mind reading the poem Extinction, which I think does such a great job of balancing that sort of search for harmony with the kind of uh, more distressing parts of life on planet Earth. Sure. And just to add to what you were saying, I, I really see sacred books, including the, the Christian Bible, as gestures towards mystery again. You know, a, a book like Job, in which a good man is given over to suffer by God, or the destruction of the world in a story like Noah. You were talking about the sentimental. It becomes a children's story. And I think a lot of people, you know, in, in, in songs, you know, how Noah led the creatures two by two onto the ark, that this becomes the version that people hang on to as opposed to recognizing, no, this is a mythical story in which trying to understand why suffering takes place. God literally 
kills every human on the planet except for Noah's family. That's a very frightening story. Or how about Lot's wife looking back to Sodom and Gomorrah, which I don't know about others, but I would have been like Lot's wife and being turned into a pillar of salt. And so I don't take those as, oh, this is literally what happened. And there's a personal God that would do such a vengeful thing. That is not part of my theology. But I find these stories very interesting in terms of gestures towards the difficulty of of human existence and understanding what we might mean by God. So, extinction. Children gather at the water to search for the dead, each with a lantern sending a spear of light over the waves. They've been taught when they find themselves wading too far out to follow the shapes of crows and ravens until they reach the sandy bank. There, the birds write in white excrement about what we've done. This isn't an apologue, no moral to be spoken by a dying bear, by a turkey tail fanned in wisdom, beard grown long with irony. Some of the children have begun to dream the same dream, arms transformed to paper wings, a strong wind tearing holes. In the dead snags that rise from the marsh, 12 vultures perch, confirming that pallbearers are always the last to die. Each night before the children light their lanterns and walk into the dark, they read from a book that begins, Dear Prophecy, Please Don't Come True. But death's contagious. The musical avarice of maggot and carrion beetle, attractive. Look how clean the bones are how they've been put to rest carefully. If you lay the femur and humerus end to end, the outline of a lost continent emerges. We drew the map, we're consigned to wander. Some of us pretend we'll go on living. Thank you for that. That's so powerful. One thing that I have been giving a lot of thought to as a person who's literary minded and, you know, a fan of books and culture and art and all of these sort of things is the kind of feeling of hopelessness or the sort of feeling like all of that work pales in comparison to the kind of crises that we face. You know, it it was so kind of earth shaking to, to experience the pandemic where the biggest thing for that happened to me is I started working on the same things I've always worked on in the confines of my home instead of the confines of my office on campus. And I wonder about, from your perspective, as someone who writes poems, you know, these sort of transient ephemeral objects that, that exist kind of under the cultural radar to a large degree, how do you reconcile that practice with the like very real threat of extinction? It's such a good question because I, I remember in, in I, I think it was grad school, not undergrad, when you know I first read the lines from Auden, Poetry Makes Nothing Happen. And when I read them, I understood the context and, and what it meant. And you know, you've heard that I come from subsistence farming background and, and veterinary practice. So very pragmatic, right? What do we have to get done today? What do we do to sustain our physical lives today? but we know that that is not what human life is. It's important, but human life without 
spiritual practice, whether that's codified in some religion or or in some other way, um, celebration or reportage or recording of certain things in art, whether that be in visual art or in literary art, we know we need that. You know, we, we can call it poetically food for the soul, but it's real. Our brains, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in some of that research, what, what we learn about brains when they interact with art. And so you know, we're each given, and, you know, I, I said I was raised in a, the Presbyterian church, the idea of the body of Christ and many, you know, parts of the body of Christ. What part are you? What role do you play? And so the vocation, I would have never chosen to be a poet. I loved comic books. I liked novels, short stories. Somehow I became a poet. This is what I can do. Uh, and so I try to do it well. And I, I do want my poems to be read by other people because there's some poets that sort of pretend, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's such a small art and I don't care if my poems go out. I do. I, I think about um, myself and my classmates in the factory town, Elkhart, Indiana, where I grew up and the need for poems. And so, and when I, what poems have done for me. And I remember after 9-11, um, when I was teaching at Goshen College in Indiana and so many people turning to poetry for solace, for a way to rage against what had happened, their grief, for a way to try to move beyond grief or to call for, for a peaceful way of working out what had gone on. And so these are the small things that I can do. And, and I hope they help some other reader the way so many poets' poems have helped me. Yeah. On that notion of poems that might help or that might um, give us some perspective of the, the purpose of art and poetry in this kind of engagement, w would now be an appropriate time, do you think, to read uh, Sitting Shiva? Tell us a little bit about the poem's origin. Yeah, absolutely. So because we live in such cataclysmic times, I know one of the, the most difficult things I have for myself uh, as an environmentalist, as a professor of environmental studies, I want to do all I can to help ameliorate the effects of what has gone on in the 20th and now early 21st century. I want to call people to care for the earth better. But I also know, even if we turn things around in the next five or 10 years, there's going to be extinction events. There's going to be extirpation. And so how to live in that space? And of course, with the pandemic and, and the number of deaths that have occurred now with the pandemic. And so I wrote this poem. Sometimes I write poems as instructions to myself. And I, I hope when somebody else reads them, maybe the instructions are helpful to them. But this was a poem truly about, in this moment, how do I accept, not to condone, but, but to accept a place in this moment without allowing it to uh, just destroy me in some way. So this poem is a poem about grief, sitting Shiva. If you find the bones of a bear, sit down and stay with them. The dead desire our company. Touch each one, scapula, tibia, ulna, even the tiniest bones of the hind and forefeet, the curve of every claw, just out of sight, a thrush will sing. Birdsong is a way to speak in secret. 
find comfort in the arbutus that whitens each march on the old logging road. Wait until dark. A full moon will rise from the bear's skull, showing what she thought of us. Hold the moon skull in your lap. Stroke the cranial ridges. You may see your dead father scaling the talus to the blueberry field where this bear ate, mouth sated and purpled by the sweetest fruit. Your mother will be in the room on the second floor of the house, packing and then unpacking a box of your father's clothes. It's hard to give up this life, but we must. Others are waiting behind us. Thank you for that, Todd. It's such a powerful example of the poems that run throughout your career and Coffin Honey in particular and the sort of call to mark, you know, the change, changing environment and the changing world around us and observe the small things in their idiosyncrasy and to celebrate, you know, what moments we do have sort of cradling that moon skull in our laps. Um, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you about your book today, and I hope that this conversation has inspired others to pick up Cough and Honey and to get out into the world and, and try to see things from a different perspective. Thanks so much, Kurt. I've really enjoyed this time. Todd Davis's Cough and Honey, along with his other poetry collections, are available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can learn more about Todd and his work at todddavispoet.com, and you can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter. You can also find me on Twitter at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of the MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.